0: We talk so much about representation and media and we really don't, we stop there, right? And what I want us to talk about is production, right? It's about who's behind the camera, who's behind the mic, who has the authority to, to write these stories and narratives. And I think that what this shows us is that we've always fought for creating our own content and we've done it and we've been successful at it. Whether or not you know about it is a different story.
1: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hello,
2: everybody. Erica Klein here.
1: On the show today, we're taking a close look at the history of an influential Spanish language community radio station, KDNA. Located in Washington State, the station launched in 1979 and serves a rural community, which includes farm workers and immigrants. Our guest Monica De La Torre is assistant professor at the School of Transborder Studies at Arizona State University and is the author of a forthcoming book about KDNA called Feminista Frequencies: Community Building Through Radio in the Yakima Valley. Thanks for being with us today, Monica.
0: Hello everyone. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, I'm I'm curious um Your book focuses on KDNA, and I'm curious what drew you to this particular station as a project.
0: Great. So uh, I first became enamored by radio just through my own family and growing up. It was a point of relationship building with my mom, driving in the car with her, driving to school. Uh, We always listened to the radio, usually like Top 40 Spanish or Top 40 English radio. But once I got to grad school, I learned about this radio station called KDNA that was one of the first Spanish community-based radio stations in the country. And that there was a woman that was one of the first station managers at the station who was Mexican-American or Chicana, just like me. And when I learned about her, I got really excited because I had my own background in radio before coming to grad school. So I, one was a surprise and Disappointed that I didn't know about this like radio past, that I had these, you know, four mothers that were on the radio before I even was alive, right? And so, uh, learning about radio from a woman's point of view, from an immigrant point of view, from the perspective of these marginalized communities was just something that caught my attention. And I started doing, you know, at this point already, you know, Google searches and just coming up short, not not having any sort of uh, information. And so that was my first dip into thinking about radio and thinking about Spanish language radio in particular and community radio and those different junctures. And again, um, really not finding a lot of, of research and then thinking, well, you know, there's not a lot of research. So this is a perfect research project. Not really thinking that it would, you know, also lend itself to a lot of challenges, but that was a really sort of serendipitous moment for me to come to grad school in Seattle and learn of this station, you know, far away from the Latino enclaves that we are familiar with.
1: Yeah. And before we get more into that, I'm always curious about people's personal radio backgrounds. And it sounds like learning about a station that had people like you was really compelling. Was that your experience when
0: you were a participant in
1: radio prior to that?
0: And so tell us more about that story. Yeah, maybe I'll finally divulge my missed opportunity in college radio. Uh, I went to undergrad at UC Davis, which has a pretty, you know, well-known college radio station, KDVS. And my roommate at the time and I went to the volunteer meeting and really just didn't feel like we didn't vibe. Like we just didn't feel that we were Um, We felt that there was a sort of barrier to entry. We didn't feel cool enough. You know, I think coming along with that is that we were also first generation college students. You know, I come from, uh, my parents are immigrants from Mexico, and I was the first to move away to college. So I think there was just a lot of. Newness in general in in our lives that you know adding another layer of like the cool college radio factor just was not <laughs> you know was not going to happen for me at the at that moment. I also just you know lacked in general you know self confidence was just an awkward you know teenager right and so um, really couldn't get into the door there. But uh, always just had this dream that one day maybe I'll be on the radio and. I moved back to L.A. after that, after I finished my undergrad and, again, didn't know what I was going to do and started working at a nonprofit and then missed school and started a master's program where I came across a group of people that were volunteering at this radio station called KPFK, where they did a show once a month. The group is called Soul Rebel Radio, and they were like, we need volunteers. And it was such a different uh inviting experience versus, you know, before where I felt like, you know, I don't fit in or it doesn't really feel welcoming. I had to do all these volunteer hours. Whereas these, these, these uh, folks are like, we just need people to to like help us make the show because, you know, we're all unpaid young. Uh, you know, we really just want the access to the, to the airwaves to me was like, wow, they're letting you guys like <laughs> be on the air for an hour. Um, and and it just seemed like a dream. And so I just started showing up to the meetings and our first meeting me and another new volunteer showed up and nobody was there they were off to a party. So <laughs> they forgot to tell the new people that they were like gathering at someone's home for their birthday party and their meeting was going to be there. But we eventually having somebody else, you know, be new with me, we eventually uh, stuck around and we were all self-taught. I learned to edit through watching uh, my, you know, my, my, the other people in the collective, uh, edit, you know, we had pirated copies of editing software, you know, we just like shared software, which you can't really do nowadays. I just dove into this love of, of storytelling through audio that I, I knew was there, but I, I really hadn't, uh, really cracked it open until I, I started working with this group. And what kind of show were you doing there? So we were doing a mix like magazine style. We would do skits. So we we had this format where we would pick a a topic each month and sort of do a deep dive into a topic. So it ranged from like education to women's issues to the environment or war, um, the economy. And we would take the perspective of young people and um, do, you know, comedic skits or interviews or, um, and we always had two hosts that would kind of carry forward the show. And I think it just was a my first also experience in collective uh, media production, which it has its own, you know, uh, variables and, and um, you're adding different types of people and personalities, but it was definitely a way to learn to make media that was group-oriented, that was, we're all taking responsibility for this one project. We learned a lot about dynamics, about uh, really getting our pieces done, learning how to write, learning how to record. Again, one of the nice things about a community radio station like KPFK was that we did have, once we were part of the collective, we did have, you know, access to the radio studio. So that really helped us to cultivate this uh, weekly, you know, production meeting. We would go into the studios on Sundays and again work on uh, scripts and skits, and so it was kind of a hodgepodge mishmash. Um, but it was always very dynamic and very, I think, a, a way of of hel- helping us bridge into these other types of communities.
1: It's amazing and powerful that you found this community that was so welcoming. And I'm guessing that when you learned about KDNA it rang true with that experience that you had at at KPFK. So let's dive into what sort of station is KDNA and give that context of what the station is all about.
0: KDNA is a rural uh, Spanish language farm worker focused radio station. It uh, began as a collaboration between different Civil rights, uh, farm worker activist groups in the state of Washington, but also originally was conceived as a tri-state model that would bridge uh, radio, you know, programming from Washington to Oregon and to Idaho, and so uh, originally it was going to be, you know, this tri-state model that never fully formed and. Radio KDNA first actually started programming in Seattle at uh, another community radio station, KRAB or Crab Crab FM, which was Seattle's first community radio station. So people working on on KDNA at the time on, on launching this Spanish language. Radio programming, we're really just looking for radio stations to air content. They really weren't looking to create their own radio station, but and we're after, talking about
2: uh, this this is around the time of the late 1970s, is that right?
0: Right. So this is like mid-mid 70s, like around 1975, 76, the radio um Cadena project starts to create programming. And again, they're airing it at uh out of KREB's S A S C A signal. So the secondary the subsidiary communications authorization signal, I think is what it's called, but it's basically uh, another signal on the frequency that you need a special receiver for. So they bought about 150 receivers and Mm -hmm. were like renting them out, but you could imagine how that didn't become a very um, good model for getting radio to low-income communities, right? So um, they kind of like, the good thing is that they started doing these programs, you know, they started a news network called the Spanish language news network where they had a, you know, a reel-to-reel phone recording setup, and they would have reporters from across the country call in and record short news segments in Spanish. So this was around like 76, 77, 78 that this like short-lived news network happened. But again, it's just uh, was showing the connectivity of these communities Uh, showing sort of an underground um, because we don't really learn about or talk about, you know, the, the uh, Spanish language network, as much as English networks, right. In the U S so, but it created this, this like network of pockets of, of reporters that knew that they could now call into KDNA and, record news for for Spanish-speaking communities. So um, that sort of set up the, the people working on the project to then apply for a FCC license. So they knew that the window was closing soon for community nonprofit radio stations. So they just got in their application in time, and that sort of started this um, new journey of building a a radio station, but not in Seattle, in Granger in eastern Washington, which made a lot more sense in terms of it being in a rural area. I think it really set up the station for some benefits in the sense that there is more availability in radio frequency. There was, I mean, also the community they wanted to reach, the the, the listeners were in that region, right? Um, It's a mostly agricultural uh, area. If you haven't, been or aren't familiar with central and eastern Washington, it's a lot more, you know, the climate is a lot more, you know, both really cold, but also really hot, dry and arid. So a lot of irrigation programs were started in the 40s and 50s that really laid out uh, the conditions for a lot of migrant Mexican and Mexican-American farm workers to start coming from places like Texas and Arizona and California and across the country, really, to the Yakima Valley to start working in hops or cherries or sugar beets. So it's also a big crop. Um, so the radio station really did do its job of, of coming to the listeners that they were really trying to cater to, but, uh, it's in a very rural area. The station first set up shop in an old building that was called the Academy and it had a sort of life of its own. It's an old three-story brick building that was, um, hotel uh, in the early 1900s for the trip uh, from Spokane to Seattle. It was kind of like a halfway point. Uh, it then became a Seventh-day Adventist church. And then eventually it became sort of like a social services hub where uh, nonprofit groups that helped start the station were housed there. So um, one of those groups was the Northwest Rural Opportunities that was for migrant uh, help for migrant farm workers, uh, employment opportunities. And so they, help sort of set up the station in this old building and really just converted, uh, you know, old offices into into studio space. But um, really, I guess, humble beginnings, like a lot of community stations, you know, there's secondhand equipment. It's, again, uh, you're doing a lot of stuff, DIY, or what I call in the book, rasquache, which is a you know, a a Chicana or Chicano term that means like, you know, also like do it yourself or you sort of make means with whatever you have. But within that, you are able to make a lot of actually really great media, right? It's not so much about sometimes the equipment, but it's about the, the narratives, the stories that, that get told through, through that.
1: I was struck by, well, from the very beginning of the conversation, you talked about how powerful it was to you that a woman was one of the folks behind, KDNA from the beginning, and your book is called Feminista Frequencies. So I'm curious to have you talk more about why you specifically wanted to focus on women's role at the station and, and their part in its history.
0: Well, I think, first of all, um, media still continues to be uh, perceived as a very male-dominated. But what I think I'm learning more and more as I do this work is that Mm, it's actually not the case. And there's been a lot of women from the early days of radio. And I know we know this a lot about, you know, um, uh, English radio, but I think when we think about the history of Mexican-American or Latinx communities in the U.S., um, we really are not given um, the chance to learn about people that innovated uh, mediums like radio and television and film, right? We're uh, very much cast in this immigrant, uh, always... Always immigrant and never as part of like an embedded part of of the country, right? Um, That has a history well beyond the even the beginnings of this country, right? So I think to to one make a deliberate uh, call out that this is going to be an engagement with media that's going to have a focus specifically not just on women but on how. That in and of itself creates a point of innovation that um, we're going to create media a little bit differently than other people, right? And and any subjectivity, right? Um, that that you experience, any difference that you experience in your life, that's going to orient you in a different direction and, and influence how you produce, how, what you create, right? And so I think that for me, it's always interesting that we elevate a lot of men, especially in radio, especially I think with Spanish language radio, uh, we are quick to sort of name a lot of famous male radio uh, personalities like Pedro Gonzalez and, and others, especially in the early days. But I think that there's just a a larger story to be told. I think that men don't work in isolation. They don't work in a vacuum. Men often we know have partners that are women that have done a lot of the work without the credit. So I I think that automatically signaling through um, this idea that, um, we, women uh, engage in a frequency and in a way of making radio that is connected across time and space that for me to create radio in the 2000s, early, you know, mid 2000s, uh, talking about, you know, women's issues and access to uh, women's reproductive rights and talking still about sexism and machismo and were topics that were being discussed in the seventies and eighties on these shows. And I had no idea, right. I didn't learn about it, but yet we created the media in the same vein, right. To have references um, to our cultural traditions that are, again, I see it in their program guides. I see it in how we engaged in, um, you know, civil rights in the memory of civil rights activism of the sixties and seventies, you know, without knowing that there was also some media activism in there. Um, So I think that for me, it's, it's always figuring out a way to give credit to, to women. Uh, But also to say that the work can't just happen with women, right? It has to be a collaborative process that men also need to engage with that. And I talk about some of that in the book that uh, while there was resistance, there was you know, still sexism, that there was also allies and there were uh, people that believed in the right for everyone to learn how to make media.
1: I think, I mean, again, back to the beginning, you talked a bit about spaces that felt welcoming to you or that didn't feel welcoming. And I think often, you know, from my own experience too, radio and technology can be sort of presumed to be a more male activity. And and I think, you know, breaking down that myth is, is really important. And I get a sense that that's something that was going on at, at KDNA, where women were really encouraged to be producers as well, to do the hands-on work that people might think is sort of high-tech.
0: Right. Yeah. They were just as much learning to cut the audio and to actually produce a full segment. And I think it was partly, you know, also out of necessity, right? It's like you have to fill about 18 hours a day of of radio. That's a long, that's a lot of content, right? And so I think part of again being set up uh in a way that's, you know, do it yourself and like let's just figure it all that out, all that on our own, those also create some really interesting conditions for, you know, really anyone stepping up and saying, you know, I want to learn, I wanna do this. And I think once once people are allowed to engage in that creative process, then everyone, everyone enjoys the results, right. And so I think that was something really important for 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 KDNA. But also, again, that the station manager was the woman that that really made space, you know, to also hire women at all capacities, right. So uh, I think that that, again, is just a really important piece of that puzzle.
2: What was the name of the station manager of this uh, Yakima Washington radio station yeah, so in, her in the
0: late 1970s? Yeah. So her name, uh, Rosa Ramon, and actually um, she's been the person that I've been working with this this whole time. So I really need to give her not just a shout out, but also just really um, give her her proper credit in terms of being uh, co-collaborator in this process with me. So I met her here um, in Seattle at the University of Washington, uh, working on another project called Women Who Rock, Making C- Scenes, Building Communities. And it is a project that's being led out of the University of Washington, but that really looks at bringing women more into the the archives and into the history books of their roles in uh, rock music, but also other music and social justice scenes. So um, shout out to that group, but I interviewed her for that project. And again, just another layer of connectivity and of of relationship building, because that's also something that is part of this feminist frequencies is that part of this work of, of documenting, especially radio, um, and especially radio from the 60s, 70s, 80s, now even 90s, right, um, is that uh, a lot of these archives are not in the libraries at the university, right? They are in people's garages, in their basements, In um, it's, it's their personal collections, and these personal collections mean something, right? And so meeting Rosa and then really starting to build a relationship with her, and I think my own background in radio helped, right? That she was able to not just see me as a researcher, but also as a fellow community radio person, right? That I wasn't going to just be extractive of knowledge and, you know, interview her once and then say, bye, thanks, you know, I'm gonna go make my academic career now. But um, it's really been more of a, a just learning to, uh, being community with her, with other people she's introduced me to, um, you know, still keeping that relationship going, and I think that all of those components just are, again, um, they are tactics that that again are, are very much feminist, but also just for any person that really wants to build community, right? So, her and I have really done a lot of work in uh, finding and, and digitizing and scanning, and she's just as much invested. In this, as I am, and I think that's also really important, right? So, um, I think a lot of this work doesn't happen in isolation; it happens by making those efforts, building that community, and being invested in in, in getting this information out.
2: What was something that Rosa Ramon wanted people to know about her radio station?
0: I mean, I think just to know that it exists, right? I think that there's a lot of get uh, misconception about. Um, what role we've had and what legacy what institutional building we've we've contributed to, and I think uh being at the forefront of public broadcasting is is one of those things right that yeah. what we've used this medium that farm workers at spanish speaking uh communities have used this medium to really build community to um learn you know information and just uh to hear their of their their language right to hear that. I think that's that's the biggest for her is 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 to that that the station that it's it's history and its role it doesn't get erased or sort of sidetracked even more right because there's a
2: it's a farm worker radio station that was on the air in outside of any of the big cities in the United States you know, out it's far from Seattle Washington far from Spokane Washington right. Um, right. and was on the air for decades in, yeah, it's still in on there now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so broadcasting in the Spanish language, I could see how it would um, fall through the cracks of the media imagination. Yeah. You know, uh, in the big city,
0: absolutely, and and I think that's one of the um, not just with radio, but with all formats with media that. Um, one, I think it tries to homogenize, right? And tries to slap one label on communities. It's like, that's black, that's Asian, that's Latinx, that's queer. Uh, but those are all, you know, they all flow through each other, right? And uh, those are all just um, ways of, I think, sometimes building community, but also of, of keeping us apart and, and of uh, of not really seeing how, you um, Spanish is part of U.S. culture, right? As much as a lot of people don't want to admit it, you know, it's not, it's not, the, you know, we don't have an official language, so it might as well be Spanglish and all the other languages and hodgepodge and mishmashes that, you know, that is language. But you're absolutely right. I think it's it's easy for it to fall off the radar because we're not even on the radar sometimes, you know.
1: And well, maybe that's a good place to talk about the community of listeners. And, and was this unusual At the time, to have a station anywhere that was broadcasting to farm workers, for example?
0: I mean, I don't think it was that unusual. I think that having it um, be so outwardly catered to, because I think, you know, workers in general have always, you know, taken to radio because it's something that they can listen to on the job, right? So I think um, even with Spanish commercial radio in like the 30s and 40s and 50s, there were pockets of music and um, you know, uh, broker time that, that was, that um, DJs were able to buy, you know, small half an hour at usually really bad times, right? Early morning, late at night. Uh, but I think that what community radio in particular, public broadcasting did is that it um, allowed for even more variety, right? That um, a bunch of, because it wasn't just KDNA that was um, started, there was there are a lot of others. So um, KBBF again is the, one of the first bilingual stations in the U.S. in Santa Rosa. And then there's um, KUBO and uh, went on air in 1980 in Denver, Colorado. Uh, KRZA uh, went on air uh, in 85 in Alamosa, Colorado. Um, and there's a whole there's a whole other um, whole others that 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 did go on air, and some have gone off air since. But I think that for a moment there was, you know, pockets of community broadcasting that again, because we haven't archived any of this. Um, it really hasn't been researched. We really don't know what other we, I haven't even talked about the East coast, which I'm not even familiar with and all the Puerto Rican, Dominican, Cuban, right. That pockets of, of radio media production that, you know, that we still have yet to discover. So um There's always, I think, been some form of Spanish radio, but a real um, commitment to rural farm workers and um, uh, intentional creation of content for them, I think, was at the time pretty uh, innovative. And was the content talk content or music content? It was everything. So it was was, uh, morning usually started with music, Uh, usually with uh, upbeat Mexican rancheras, you know, to kind of get people pumped for the day, uh, then they would go into talk. Um, they actually also had a children's program called El Jardin de los Ninos or kindergarten that had like, um, characters. And I uh, was very, it's still again, still on air and very beloved by, by all sort of children of all ages is what they say. They also had, um, job opportunities, um, sort of like an on-air, um, Craigslist sort of where they would like sell things on air or trade, but just a lot of different um, focused on what the community needs were.
1: Another thing that you have pointed out is the activists that uh, there are activist roots and activists involved in founding the station. So I'm curious how that how that is articulated on the air.
0: Right. Um, so I think uh, two two examples, um, one being in 1986, so maybe, you know, like almost uh, five, six years into the station going on air, we have the passing of the Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA, the last time we had immigration reform. Uh, and so they helped people fill out forms. Invaded um, people to the radio station and said, hey, we're, we're going to help you fill out these forms. I, letting people know that this was an opportunity. Um, so I think that, that, you know, is one example. The second is their uh, health programming that they took on. So, uh, in, in eight, 1989, they produced, um, Spanish language, um, radio drama, a radio novela about, um, three farm workers, uh, who are coming to the United States, um, and, uh, encounter the, uh, AIDS epidemic. And so they talked about AIDS, about uh, sexual um, uh, disease transmission on air. They also had an accompanying accompanying, uh, photonovela or, uh, you know, like a zine or a photo photo book. Um, And they had, it was a 15 episode, about five minutes. Uh, But really, um, this is some of the content that like I've, I've, I've uncovered through, through this work. Um, and it's uh, a really fascinating show again, uh, 15 episodes, five minutes, three men, and they each play the sort of like a character role of the bad one, the good one, and the one that's figuring it out. Um, but it, it really talks about, you know, de- demystifying how one, you know, gets AIDS, what it is. Yeah. I mean, at that point, 80, 89, right. It's still kind of, what is it? What's going on? A lot of misconceptions, a lot of talk about it being a gay disease, a white disease. Um, And so it takes on this really taboo topic and um, to much of the, you know, both um, celebration, but also dismay of community. Um, And it didn't just air at KDNA, it actually aired nationally too. So.
1: Wow. Yeah. What was some of the reaction? I mean, that sounds incredible. And you know, I have a number of questions, you know, are we (laughs) able to, are we able to hear that anywhere and what were reactions to
0: it? Yeah. So the reactions are varied, right. It was um, all from, this is amazing. Like we actually need this sort of health education at farm worker camps, right. It's um, it's a community that's being very much affected by, by AIDS, HIV. Um, There was also a lot of, uh, because the show is explicit, right. It talks about, you know, condom use and, um, sexual activity and, and, and men engaging in, in, in sex with men. And um, people were not happy. They were, you know, this is too crude. This is too much. Um, and so a lot of stations ended up either playing it really late. Um, but, you know, I think, I think in, in retrospect, that commitment to um, we're going to create this, even if it makes some of our listeners uncomfortable, because at the end of the day, it's about saving a life. Right. Um, I think that really speaks to the the commitment to uh, using radio as a tool for uh community improvement and knowledge and and education but hopefully um I'm also working on a uh companion uh website and podcast for the Uh, book. So hopefully you'll be able to hear the show on the archive on the online archive I'm working on. So um, I'm hoping to bring a lot of the content that we've been able to find and digitize um, and put it up online because I think at the end of the day, you know, this is not my knowledge, right? I'm not going to, I don't want to hoard it. It's, there's so much tendency, especially in academia to, um, you know, say like, this is mine, can't have it. And I, I understand that, but I also, again, I want to stay true to my own community media roots. And if you don't share it, like what's the point of it. Right. So I'm really hoping that, um, that, that all of these tools, right. The the website, the the book, the, the podcast will just elevate sort of these stories and, and, and inspire like to figure out where other, you know, what other radio stations created by different communities are out there. Because I, I really do just, I know that there's just so much uncovered, you know, uh, history out there. So I'm really hoping that this is just a little bit of a larger narrative.
2: Well, Monica De La Torre, uh, assistant professor at the School of Transborder Studies at Arizona State University. Uh, when that website, when that book is available to the public, uh, people will be able to find out about it at radiosurvivor.com. And perhaps uh, we'll have you back on to celebrate. Uh, yes, to celebrate. absolutely. And, and the book is called Feminista Frequencies community building through radio in the Yakima Valley. We're, we're focusing today on Radio Survivor, uh, in specifics on a radio station called KDNA in English, or Cadena in Espanol. And yeah. uh, it was a farmworker radio station. How much uh, union organizing farmworker uh, labor politics was on this radio station? Yeah. Was there an involvement directly with... With farm worker unions, or is how did that? Yeah, operate? yeah. And no, we're talking but, uh, about the uh, about the '80s and '90s, and it's still on the air now. But we're we're also talking yeah, yeah, about yeah. the history of this station, which was founded and it launched in 1979.
0: Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's a great question. Um. So actually, cadena means a chain, chain link, or in Spanish. So it's also very appropriate in that it was trying to build, you know, um, power. I think as well and worker power. While uh, not, I think. Uh, officially affiliated with any sort of um, particular union. Uh, The United Farm Workers, uh, Cesar Chavez, did come and visit the station and was inspired to then launch his own network of radio stations, uh, the Radio Campesina Network. Um, And they had uh, their own version. We have our own version. Uh, The uh, United Farm Workers group here in, in, in Washington also, uh, organized and was, uh, they were volunteers for the radio station as well. Um, I think what the, the station really tried to do was to inform workers of their rights inform workers of, uh, of the fact that they, you know, had the, the right to bathrooms and breaks and, you know, proper wages and, um, warning them that, you know, pesticides were, um, uh, you know, dangerous and uh, and could cause illnesses. Um, so I think that all of that, um, you know, we read it as pro-worker, you know, pro-worker um, and, and, and pro-union. And, and I think it, it very much is, but it's also just basic, you know, pro-human rights. And so I think that uh, obviously um, the radio station, because it was, for that specific community was going to be um, challenged by structures like uh, agribusinesses. So um, we do know that some, you know, uh, you know, big growers were a little upset uh, about Radio Cadena, but, you know, they never violated any FCC, violate any FCC rules. And even though they you know, try to catch them in, in sort of FCC violations to get them off air. Um, when there were INS at the time or ICE raids, immigration raids, um, the radio station did play a song. I've been told to sort of warn warn farm workers that, um, that ICE was around. So um, uh, that, that's been a story I've heard uh, uh, shared about the station. But I think they were really just trying to... Uh, you know, provide uh marginalized communities with resources that one were available to them by the government, right? Uh, but then I think also just letting people know that they were they were here for them, right? That they were gonna be a source for information. Um, you know, I've been told a lot of times that instead of nine one one, communities had Radio Cadena on speed dial, right? That they would call the station before they called the police or firefighters or um any any sort of authorities it was always calling the station first i think that speaks to the trust and and the um how much the station was able to become embedded in the community
1: and who who were the folks who are running the station and who were the volunteers on the microphone and and were they were were listeners becoming active participants in the station as producers i'm curious about the the broader community, like within and
0: outside the station. Yeah. So um, from, from what I've gathered and, you know, that's been something to talk to listeners has been a part of challenging, right. Especially for that time. But um, a lot of the, the DJs were, you know, just volunteers from the community itself uh, college students, young people, uh, farm workers themselves. So the because they collaborated with this organization that I mentioned early, earlier, Northwest Rural Opportunities, they were able to offer job training programs for farm workers to then transition into radio work. So um, a lot of the um, people on air were actually, you know, farm workers themselves, um a lot of the women there was a women's show called mujer or woman um, and a lot of those women were former farm workers that then were able to transition into uh, radio broadcasting work and just people from the community that that were interested in in being on air a lot of uh, people also they invited you know social workers and doctors and different, uh, members from the community to be interviewed as well. So um, I think it, like any community station, it's welcoming of whoever wants to make, you know, make radio and, and, and play records and play music. That's really unique and, though,
2: because we're all familiar here at Radio Survivor with urban radio stations that run on volunteer labor. But it, I I I'm fascinated by the idea of this, Yakima Washington farm worker focused Spanish language community radio station that was, that, that, um, was able to staff itself with volunteers. Uh, yeah. I mean, they formal- had
0: a staff, they did have a staff, like I think uh, uh, most like maybe five, mm-hmm. but did it, I'm sorry. I cut off your Oh question. no, that's great. So, so, so there's five paid
2: staffers and then, then there's this, um, large unpaid staff that, 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 that makes the radio every day throughout the decades that this station mm-hmm. is on the air, mm-hmm. including today. It's just, um, it's really interesting to think about such a small town having that opportunity as opposed to, you know, most, most, most radio stations that I'm familiar with
0: that have, that are volunteer run are in the big city. Yeah. I mean, I, I think from the shows that I've listened to and, um, I think it just becomes very familial. Like it it becomes very a, a lot of families. So Rosa Ramon that I've talked about, uh, who was the first station manager, she, you know, her sisters, her brother would, you know, be volunteers. They would like staff the events whenever they had events. So I think like a lot of, you know, Latino families, we will pull in our on, on our own to <laughs> you know, guilt them into helping us. But um I think that there's just such a commitment um to to keeping the station and and to knowing the value of it. Right. Because I think when I, when I've gone to the station and talked to the people there, they're very proud and they're very aware that theirs is a very unique place. Right. So since 79, they actually have been able to uh, move into a brand new building that they built over the same place. So they demolished the old building and um, through grants and, um, you know, fundraising, we're able to, create this brand new, really beautiful community center structure that has both the radio station, but also meeting space. Um, so I think that the, which is different from other, I think, community stations, we always had to be buzzed in at KPFK, right? We couldn't just walk in. Whereas here, you know, you literally can just walk in and walk into the station. And it's it's a very welcoming, and I think it maybe owes that to that small town rural you know, we don't lock our doors sort of like, you know, um, just way of living.
1: Um, Yeah. That, that rings true with, um, experiences I've had, I think, you know, in some ways in smaller communities, a community radio station has a different sort of vitality. And and like you talked about really interconnected and, and part of the
0: family. Yeah. And it's generational too, right? Like uh, I'll have people that'll be like, Oh yeah. Like when I used to, uh, teach classes at, at, at UW in Seattle, my students would be like, oh yeah, my, you know, like I used to listen to that station. Like that's, that's like my, my aunt works there. You know, it's just a very, I think intergenerational um, also um, experience.
1: You, I wanted to, to go back. You mentioned the show Mujer, uh, the women's show, maybe talk a little more about that, especially, you know, since, Women are such a big part of your story, part of your your book project about the station.
0: Right. Yeah. So it was um, along with all the other all their other shows. It was um, a show that came out um, sort of through dialogue and 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 talk about what what does our community need. And one of those things was that we need to have a, a show specifically dedicated to women to women's issues. Um, so it was a, a thirty minute show that um, uh, covered, you know, different, everything and anything. So they had cooking segments. They had, um, like I said, different types of social workers and, uh, music. Uh, I have been able to chuck down one show uh, they interviewed a, a, a drummer for this local group. Who's a woman, a woman drummer. Um, and they also, you know, again, bridging those difficult topics had, um, talked about sexual assault and incest. And that was one of the shows that um, I was told in my interviews was really impactful. And actually uh, just mentioning, you know, that, that topic on air really allowed for people to just call in and, and really uh, share and, and start talking about these really, you know, um, damaging and hurtful experiences. But uh, I think that's one of the really beautiful things about radio is that it does give that anonymity, um, but also that, that, that intimacy, right? That's what the voice really lends itself to is that, um, people are able to call in, in sort of, um, not the best conditions and and seek guidance and seek help. Um, talking about domestic violence on air, um, I, you know, a lot of, uh women just hearing that story i know one one person i talked to shared with me she was able to like leave her husband and because they had this other show the one i told you that they like the on-air craigslist she was able to get like the child seat you know through that so that she could like leave her house and put her kid in the car and it's just like all those little intricate but also we don't really think about details of, of these situations um are just all embedded through through the radio and I think that giving just that space to women to do with what they wanted on the air just was really impactful and um again created conditions for for women to step out and be like I deserve better I you know um so yeah that's I think those those are some of the more powerful um aspects of the radio station
1: and, and you've mentioned at least one example of how influential the station was, maybe talk a bit more about that. You know, it it sounds like they were really doing some groundbreaking programming and projects and how has that influenced other radio stations or other communities?
0: From what I, from what I've been able to gather, um, they did, they did influence other stations. Like I said, that there was other Chicana Chicano community based stations, um, being founded at the time in the seventies and eighties. And they knew about a uh, cadena. They had a um, policy that prohibited airing sexist music. So they wouldn't air any songs that were degrading to women or, you know, um, degrading to any, any people in the community. And, and like people knew about that. People knew that, Oh, they don't play that kind of music at KDNA or um, just learning about each other and, and, and their tactics for producing media. I think, um, was something that Cadena was influential in all of the health programming. So like I said, that they had the HIV AIDS show, they've had shows on breastfeeding and asthma. And um, I think really having content for Spanish speaking listeners um, is in and of itself, you know, just something we don't really think about when we, when we think about health education content, right? How do we reach different types of communities? Um, but I think that their impact has just been to locally within the community just really inspire folks to, you know, go to college and to, you know, just learn that that there's other options out there. So I know that that's been something that um, people have shared with me, that, um, that that the station really helped them to, you know, do better and, and go to school. And, and so that's, I think, influenced that. Monica, is really valuable.
2: Monica De La Torre, uh, have you listened to the station KDNA uh, during the pandemic? What kind of, yeah, what kind of content? Uh, what kind of education, health, yeah. public health information are they broadcasting? Or words, yeah, especially so, last year.
0: Yeah, I, I don't listen a lot to it, but I know that they were um, getting information out about you know first like um, COVID and what it was, and then now getting out you know. The, the information about the vaccine. So, um, it's still very much, um, and now they're working with uh, a local health group called SEMAR um, that, it, you know, I think is committed to informing different communities about, uh, both uh, COVID and the vaccine. So, um, but they're still on air. They're still, uh, I just listened to it this weekend. They're still playing music sort of, um, their regular programming, but interspersing, you know, public service announcements about, uh, washing your hands and you know all all that that we all heard early on in 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 the pandemic, so they're definitely part of that you know um that voice of getting information out to the community right. and and you know here
2: here in the big city um in in the middle of june twenty twenty one the vaccine might be old news, but Yakima washington farm worker communities spanish language right. community radio programming uh there there might be uh there might be there's a lot more urgency about about getting vaccine information to the right
0: people yeah and if people are still traveling for work right like i know states have had different rollouts so you know maybe in one place people aren't able to get it but here they are so i think it's it's it just continues to be an important source of of up to date information
1: and earlier, you talked about some of the work that was being done before the station was created had to do with um, creating news content that could be shared all over the country, right. really. Um, right. and, and did that continue after KDNA launched? Did they continue to create content for other that other stations could use? And was
2: this volunteer news? Produ- was this? Uh,
0: I don't know if how. Ha- well, I know that they did like uh, have like um, other news producers call in, so they were probably hired. You know, employed through other news stations, but um, it, it didn't continue in that format once they were in in, um, in Granger in the Yakima Valley. I think they they started just broadcasting uh some of the NPR news, and um, then they started airing. So then NPR started uh producing a show called Enfoque Nacional, which was uh it ran from 1978 to 88, and it was NPR's only Spanish language radio program, but it was produced out of KPBS in San Diego. And so um, that was shared at, with KDNA. So a lot of these stations shared programming, right? So KDNA shared some of their stuff. Like I said, they shared, um, they aired the the um, AIDS HIV program, the Tres Hombres Sin Fronteras, Three Men Without Borders, and other shows um, to other stations. But um, from what I know of, the, the news network sort of, went away once they, once they came to, to Granger.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've heard in recent years from, from other stations about, in particular in California during the wildfires that um, in emergencies, often it can be really difficult to get information in Spanish. Um, And so stations that have that air um, either Spanish programming or bilingual programming are often having to translate press conferences on their own um, and, and so I'm curious if that's something that I would imagine that that is, is part of what KDNA does is, you know, provide some of this information that might not otherwise be available in Spanish.
0: Yeah. Well, one great example is uh, in May of 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted uh, here in Washington and uh, very close to the Yakima Valley. And so, um, Thankfully, KDNA was already on air. It was May of 80. They went on air in December of 79, and they were able to air in Spanish, you know, go to your homes, like, don't be out in the fields, like, there's been a volcanic eruption, <laughs> you know, so just even having that example that they were able to have, you know, emergency broadcast uh, services for Spanish-speaking communities was um Life-saving, right? Because had they not had the station on air, you know that ash, the um, all of that, the harmful effects of that eruption uh, was reaching you know, the Yakima Valley. So um, it, it really did put the station, you know, in a good uh, test to to see if they could, you know, really fill that really important role of of letting people know to to go home and be safe.
1: And presumably, radio. You know, these groups, uh, people came together to want to found, they decided to found a radio station um, for a particular reason. Maybe talk about that a little bit, about why the medium of radio was what they chose versus, you know, television or a newspaper or, or, you know, what have you. Right.
0: Well, absolutely. I think that the fact that radio is a lot more accessible, it's a lot more low cost to make and to replicate uh they did try. There was a few attempts to do uh public television uh broadcasting, but again, the 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 cost of producing television is just so much more. And so when you don't have any money, I think the radio becomes just such a uh invaluable tool. And also it just was more practical for their their audiences, right? That uh they knew that farm workers and other people working were going to be more likely to listen to the radio out in the fields, right, on their ways to work and, or home instead of going to pick up a newspaper, which some people couldn't read or, um, you know, getting home and watching television, you're not going to do, you're tired from working in the field all day, so you got to get up early for the next day. So uh, they really did capitalize on the beauty of this medium that is that is radio, that it's so portable, that it's... Um, it really is something you can do while you're doing other things, right? You can uh, listen and do um, other chores or work or, or leisure, right? That it really does lends it, lend itself to the different uh, moments of your life and of your day.
1: And as we sort of wrap things up, maybe, maybe talk a little bit about some of your favorite finds in the archives. Because it seems like you have uncovered a lot of interesting stories and details about the station.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's still a lot. There's so much, I think, you know, I'm going to betray I've talked so much about my love of audio that I'm going to say, I love the pictures, (laughs) but you know, I've the, thankfully Rosa has she bought a camera early on and, and, and just the visual archive is just so stunning. And, and I think because I'm just a audio radio geek at heart that just seeing the old microphones and, the setups and you know, the, the converted stations. Cause it just takes me back, I think to KPFK and it doesn't look the same, but it kind of does. Like it just has that, that feel of a, uh, you know, so many people have come through these doors and marked their place in the studio in some way or, or another. 80s and fashions.
2: You got, you got
0: all exactly. 80s fashions. The fashion, the, all of it, hair. The, uh, the, hair. the hair. Yeah. So I think, Um, really finding a lot of the visual that the program guides, um, which a lot of them were like hand-drawn. And so all of that just like to me spoke to, I think, again, because of my background and not to just give so much credit to being like a radio person, but, you know, I think it does just give us a different lens of analysis, right? That I think I'm just so grateful for as a scholar that I have this other way of thinking about media production that I could see them drawing it. Like I could feel them when I used to sit in a 3am editing, right? Like I could just picture them, you know, at 2am drawing that program guide. Right. And just like that comes through for me in, in the stuff that we've been able to find. Uh, but I think uh, the, the few shows that I have, I think are are definitely up there in terms of just listening to the voices listening to the choices and and production, um, the music that's so cheesy (laughs) eighties background stuff, but you know, it just, it just really marks the time and place. And, um, I think just having these, um, uh, treasures and, you know, accessible and thankful that people have held on to their, their things and to their memories and to the importance of it, that they, that Rosa knew even in, you know, 78, 79, I'm going to buy a camera and I'm going to take a ton of pictures because this is, this is, this is something right. Um, It could have so easily been, you know, a a a, you know, forgotten, uh, you know, thing to do, but thankfully it wasn't. And, and, and I think now we're just able to look at it and, and really learn from it because I think the, what I, ultimately hope that the book does is that it helps us talking about, we talk so much about representation and media and we really don't, we, we stop there. Right. And what I want us to talk about is production, right? It's about who's behind the camera, who's behind the mic, who's, uh, has the authority to, to write these stories and narratives. And, um, I think that what this shows us is that, We've always fought for creating our own content, and we've done it, and we've been successful at it. Whether or not you know about it is a different story um and so I think that um I'm just really excited for people to learn what grain where Granger where Yakima is like I think that's gonna be just such a cool you know um addition to the mexican American experience here in the u s that we're everywhere, whether you like it or not, you know, it's uh, our histories are embedded uh, very much in our in this culture that we call, you know, America and U.S. And, um, and so I think that having the the because, you know, we're so much about evidence and what's your you know, what's the proof that I'm really glad that I have these these um, visual and, and, and audio pieces of, of evidence to to share
1: we're always on Radio Survivor trying to broaden our understanding of of what radio is and what radio history is. So, Monica De La Torre, I'm so thankful that you came on the show to tell us more about KDNA and this important
0: history. So, thanks again. Thank you all so much. I'm such a fan, and I just um, I'm really thankful that um, that you uh, create the space and continue to. Broadcast in this medium because anytime anybody says what radio, What's that, I'm just like Bleh. it'll be around even after where all this other stuff is burned <laughs> to the ground. We're
2: also a podcast.
0: <laughs> people, well, yeah, yeah. Podcast. People tend you know to what like I mean. those
2: things. Apparently, <laughs>
0: that's podcasts, radio. How wonderful! You know.
1: Well, and now we're in the podcast. Yeah, I think right exactly. um I Well, Eric's about to ask something, but no, I also want to ask him. Um, so tell us you you want to do a companion podcast for this project. So tell us what what you're thinking for that. I'm I'm excited yeah. to hear it.
0: Yeah. So um, now that I, I I thought that I was going to be working on it simultaneously with the book, I don't know why. But now that the book is <laughs> done, I know it's dumb. Uh, but now now I have a better idea. I I really want it to be. I want it to be complementary, but also different too. So I think that. What I'm going to do in the podcast is break down, you know, really talk about the book. But I also want to talk about the process of of the archiving and, and the gathering and uh, all of that. Um, I'm hoping to add some of the interviews that I've done, um, give some examples of the content. Uh, but like I said, I'm hoping that um, the full radio shows that I've been able to digitize and have um, will also be you know, available. But I really want the podcast to just add another layer of analysis and, and of explanation because just personally, I just I, I think in different ways. And I think the book will make certain arguments that, you know, I think that the I'll be able to flesh out more in, in the podcast through just talking about it and um, just to give a different teaching tool because I'm also a professor. And so I feel that, you know, just I always when I'm teaching books, especially now, just I want other form of examples and and, and knowledge and content. So um, I'm hoping that it kind of gives sort of a, a snapshot of the book, but also adds a little bit of more um, context to it as well.
1: I, I love that. And are a lot of people doing that? I mean, that seems very smart and innovative um, and, and it a makes lot a lot of st- work and a lot of
0: work. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I actually was having this conversation with my partner. I was like, do I mean, I know people go on podcasts like I am right now to talk about their books, but I don't know that there's a lot that actually do both. I mean, I'm I'm I want to learn if there's more, but I I'm sure there's some, but I can't really think of any off the top of my head. But um, I, I'm sure there are many
2: who thought, especially like five or six years ago, who thought that the podcast would promote the book. But right. I think I think your approach might be more. I I obviously it's not the only book that started a podcast.
0: Yeah. But no. but
2: the but the idea of having a podcast that that um that that ha- that serves its own purpose. That right. you know, especially because yeah. your book is about the sound.
0: So right. That, and so, that-
2: so doing sound work makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. yeah, I just I just feel that I, how can I not have an audio component? I feel like it's like that, you know, CD ROM that used to come behind books with like music. <laughs> like it's like that sort yeah. of, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's the,
2: um, it's, yeah, it's the companion, it's the audio companion yeah. to the work. It's it's it also is. really exciting to think about how you know a book. You turn in. I mean, sometimes you get to add to it, but it it it's done. Like it's in. Yeah, you finish it and it gets printed, and it's a permanent, it's a permanent object. And right. a podcast is, you know, you can come back to the ideas from the book week yeah. after week. You can have new people,
0: yeah,
2: um, commenting on it or or right. adding. There's always so much to
0: add. Yeah, yeah I think maybe that's why. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the impermanence and the sort of coming back to, and yeah, that's another, another draw to it. And also I just, I really miss making media like I'm right. the being on tenure track and like working on a book and just being with academics has been draining. I just need like creative energy and juices. And I just, I I, I'm, I think it's very selfish too. I'm doing this just cause I want to get back to producing. So yeah, I, I think it's a, yeah, challenge and a,
2: I really want to go back to when you were a teenager and you 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 took that first step to participate in KDVS uh I, mean, I want to um yeah I want to I want to like what let's talk about like what era of KDVS that was and I mean and 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 who messed up like did they
0: and no, of course we of it, it, course
1: we know all sorts of people right, at KDOS they, okay. they have done
0: differently. <laughs> you know the sad part is, is it could have hooked me in with the history of what was his name? The sad story of the other the DJ that passed away there. Isn't there like this oh, like yeah. whole like um he was a Latino uh DJ that like tragically died and like they actually have like a whole like shine to him and mm. um but, yeah, I didn't know about that until way later that someone tried to work on a documentary or some sort of, like, Interesting. video project on it. But, you know, I don't, I don't want to put blame on end. The, right. There wasn't one person. I think, it, honestly, again, I think it was a shy kid that, right. you know, was had moved away from home from L.A. to Sa- Sacramento. I went from, like, city, city to farm, basically, because I was like where am I? This is so different from what I grew up in. Yeah. It's a very um, rural
2: campus of the university. Very of rural.
0: <laughs> the yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think just like there, so I was, I was in school there from 2001 to 2005, okay. so early 2000s. And I think it was just like that cool kid vibe that like, you know, um, sort of like, just that, like, these are the cool kids and, you have to do something to like get recognized as cool, like them for, in order to like ascend into Yeah.
2: Cause, There's cause just KDBS this, like... for, 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 for everybody who doesn't know, I guess it's, it's a, one of the coolest stations in not a, yeah. the, just around it's, like, and we yeah, keep it's... hearing about it because of, you know, people bring it up as an inspiration for other radio stations that they have founded. Like apparently every single, radio station in Portland in the last 10 years is uh, just full of KDVS people. How funny. So we, we keep hearing about it. So
0: it's, uh, yeah, no. And, and I think, I mean, I think maybe, I think maybe now I think what was happening is that they were just a legit station and I was like, yeah. we were just like college kids trying to like f- But that's, that's okay. Uh, I'll probably bleep you because of,
2: uh, uh, I don't even think it matters anymore. But it's, it's also just so, it's such an important story. And so well, and even if it wasn't anyone's go ahead, Jennifer.
1: Oh, and well, and unfortunately, I feel like your story is an all too common story of people not feeling welcome. And um and I've been to some stations that have actually acknowledged that and have tried to work on that because yeah. you know, they it's, it's they've done thing, It's one thing some if stations, I don't
2: feel cool enough. But it's another thing. It, well, and
1: I, th- and I think it, historically, Monica a lot of college cool radio stations. Um,
2: Maybe I'm not cool enough.
1: <laughs> I don't know. But I think historically, you a lot are. of college radio stations sort of are are staffed by and are presumed to appeal to white men. And, and so, um, you know, throughout my history participating in college radio as a woman, I've always been among a small number of participants and then people of color are like an even smaller fraction so like kudos to the stations that actually um recognize this and are working on ways you know how do we make our station more welcoming because i think that happens all too often where people walk into the meeting and don't see themselves reflected in the staff and don't feel overtly welcomed by anybody and then they just they leave.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely was like a, we went to one volunteer meeting and then we're like, Nope, that's not, right. that, that is not for us. Like that is somebody else. And you know, it, it is, it's sad. Cause like, it, you know, she's my best friend now. Like we, we were, we are cool. Like we had great music tastes and, you know, it just is like, Oh, it could have been, you know, but, um, yeah.
1: It, it's a sad tale i'm glad yeah, yeah. I'm glad that it didn't deter you from radio entirely because we we are definitely benefiting from from your yeah. passion for radio right. today. But I mean,
2: that really is um that was my experience as well at Pacifica Radio. you know you worked at the the l a affiliate of Pacifica mm-hmm. radio. I worked in the Berkeley affiliate and that mm-hmm. that um they just like yeah, we need your work, like we want your work, here's right. how you're gonna do the work and now do it attitude is yeah. unlike anything else that I mean that's 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 what I love the most about community radio that um right. that there's there's not a job interview
0: right you don't have right. to
2: wear you don't have to get a special haircut yeah to prepare for your for your community radio job interview it's a it's yeah it's a lot more about um the open door the the community access of it. Um,
0: And like with my group with soul rebel radio, like I wasn't even like the first, like I wasn't even the first like generation or the first group, the first iteration, like that they had been around for a few years before. And they just like, I think they had like two or three people that were like constant. And then they just like knew that they opened the door for us. We're going to keep letting people go through and like, you know, rotate out. And, And I think that was part of the beauty of, of, of this group is that, they kind of just gave us, gave certain people the keys and then uh, the rest of us got in. So yeah, it's a really unique
2: community radio model to, to get a show going where, 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 yeah, you, 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 they like, they're, yeah, they're out in the world, uh, um, bringing more people into the fold of the station because they're only responsible for this. what like one hour a month? I think you were saying, right. Yeah, Um, Yeah. Yeah. Once a month. What did you call? You called, uh, K D N A. Rasquache? Yeah. Rasquache? Yeah. Spell it right? That sounds like I spelled it right.
0: Very good. Rasquache. I love it. Yeah. I know. It's a good um, word. Like DIY, like, you know, using what's at hand, using secondhand stuff, you know, like old whatever, but just like slapping it together and making it work. Yeah. That's a great word. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to think about that and like, um, how that then translated to the shows and the aesthetics. And again, it's just like, you just make it all happen. You just scrap it all together. And, you know, um, I think that that's how a lot of, you know, stuff that's innovative gets made. Right. And, and, and not to like glorify either. Like I have a colleague and a friend that's always like pushing back on, like, we don't have to be poor either to like make cool shit, cool stuff. Um, You know, you could also make things with a budget and, you know, we also need those projects, right. That are well-funded. And, um, but, but I think what sometimes gets lost in that, right. And like the capitalist gaze of all that is the, the, the creativity and the, you start making it for other reasons. And, and I think that's where sometimes things get, you know,
2: sidetracked somewhere else. But um, I just yeah. found my new favorite Wikipedia article for Raskol Jismo.
0: <laughs> nice.
2: Link in the show notes to Raskol Jismo. <laughs> that's cool. I love it.
1: Well, is there anything else that. Um, that we should have asked you that you want to share about the project. Um, definitely send along if you have other links that you think we should yeah. include in our show notes mm-hmm. that we can share with our listeners. What's, we'll definitely yeah. put a, oh my a link to the book.
0: Yeah, we'll Just
2: come back when your podcast starts. We'll do it again. I know. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. 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 That'd be great. I um, no, I just want to say thank you. And again, it's just so fun to talk about this project. And um, I, I know that, there's going to be a lot of holes in it. And that's part of like the anxiety is like, I didn't cover this and I didn't cover that. But I think what I try to come back to is that there's just so much, there's too much. Like this is just the tip, really is a tip of one iceberg because I feel that again, like this narrative is just um, one that I think we're going to find other places. And then that I see now, right. With podcasting, with, uh, digital production i think that there's just a lot of um really cool creative you know stuff coming out now that again is under similar conditions but also under new 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 realities so does, i really think that
2: does kdna have podcasting these days i i i, they sh- I see the website is uh you can online you can listen to their station online, yeah,
0: I think that's about the extent of it um they're still i think pretty much um uh you know sort of focused on the terrestrial radio aspect of it, but I'm not aware that they're really doing a lot of podcasting and do they is is it an on
2: air fun drive listener supported radio station
0: uh, yeah 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 okay. listener supported uh so yeah, they're, they, they've had their own struggles and they've gone through a lot of changes in the, in the recent history, but, um, you know, I think that there's, they're still on air, they're still doing their thing and, um, hopefully they they could still be around for a while longer, but, you know, the, the politics of, especially, you know, um, just commercial radio is crazy. So.
2: Right. But they are non-commercial stations
0: they are non-commercial but i feel like just the competition yeah. the like from commercial stations other spanish stations yeah. you know the the what is it like the um, the value of of that frequency right, right.
2: Uh, yeah we've learned so. that we've learned that lesson on radio survivor many times it's, you know i will i will admit that like uh, when we started 5 years ago i really thought of the stations i thought there was more of a firewall between non-commercial yeah. and and commercial radio and we've we've learned that there is not it's porous and even uh yeah that it's the same media landscape just Mm -hmm. a a slightly different hill of the
1: the media landscape you know i don't know about in yakima but in other like rural small small town communities that i'm aware of the commercial and community stations often are quite similar Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they're um they're serving a hyper local audience, so it's a bit different than big city listening. So
0: right.
1: you might listen to a commercial radio station in a small town and be surprised by, oh, this right. sounds kind of like the community station. Yeah, actually, they might, might. The, mm-hmm. they
2: might do the they might do the on air uh, community uh, you know swap board as well.
0: Yeah,
1: and so region. I would th- yeah. I would think in those cases you might actually be in competition for underwriting versus yeah. advertising.
2: Monica de la Torre. Assistant Professor, School of Transborder Studies, Arizona State University, author of the forthcoming book Feminista Frequencies, Community Building through Radio in the Yakima Valley. What a wonderful episode today on Radio Survivor. Uh I I, I wanna hear more. <laughs> I didn't I can't wait to hear the podcast when it comes out, because um that hour went by really fast for me, learning about this new radio station, knowing that it exists, knowing that it has an entire lifetime of uh, history and the people that went through it and everything, everything about, you know, knowing what I know of radio stations and now finding out that this other one uh, exists, like so many others that I know so little about, uh, so exciting and um, what a what a gift to, to get to learn a little bit about it from someone who... Who has studied their history? This is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound, as we say at the top of every episode. This was a podcast that you just listened to. This uh, podcast edit is online at Radiosurvivor.com. Perhaps you listen to it there, where you can stream it in the in the uh, web browser player. You can also get the podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts, Stitcher. The Apple iTunes app. <laughs> you know, we always, this is part of the show that I just freeze up. Um, you know, it's uh, Paul Paul does it best. Where, where, where you get your podcasts, Paul will be back soon. Uh, the whole industry has shifted around so much, including the fact that uh, Apple just recently um, changed the word subscribe, which has followed podcasting for the entire history of its existence since the word uh is linked to an apple platform the you know the 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 iPod uh isn't that ornate and byzantine um, subscribe is now being used in the way that it used to be used uh to mean that you're paying a little bit of money for it uh so you don't subscribe to a podcast unless you give them a dollar that That model is brand new for the Apple uh platform, and you know Radio Survivor has nothing to do with it at this point. We do though have a Patreon subscription model if you're interested in supporting the work that Radio Survivor does and you can afford a dollar a month, you can become a patreon supporter. You can also give us five dollars a month and uh you know it's been a couple of years since we engaged in a campaign in which we created a zine and printed it and sent it to all of our supporters who gave a certain amount of money to the Patreon campaign. Uh, but 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 the website is still there. That money goes a really long way. It helps support the work that we do. You know, I, I get to use it to pay for the professional editing software. I don't have to pirate my professional editing software like uh, members of the kpfk community radio rebel uh, had to do in order to be radio producers uh I, I i pay a subscription fee and part of the patreon support part of the patreon support for radio survivor goes uh towards those costs as well as other costs uh and yet and yet everyone who works at radio survivor does it as a volunteer uh volunteer work and I'm going to say more about that, but let me tell you first, Radio Survivor loves to get email from its listeners uh, on all topics, including the one you just listened to, as well as ideas for future episodes, guest ideas, feedback on the work that we do, questions about things that you want to know about in the world of community radio, college radio, low power FM radio, the history of radio. These are all the broad topics that we love here on Radio Survivor, as well as podcasting. When it serves communities, Uh, you can email us. The email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Well, what I was going to say is that Radio Survivor, the work that we do, Jennifer Waits produced today's episode. Paul Reismandel produced the episode last week. I edit every episode. I create an edit uh, that goes out to radio stations for free. Uh, these stations don't have budgets <laughs> they're low power FM stations, community radio stations college radio stations they do not pay for programming largely and radio survivors distributed to them at no cost uh, they air us every week um, for free and it's, it's an honor to be on those airwaves I create a radio edit I create a podcast edit I go through make sure that um, it's ready to be shared in the public view Um, that that it sounds as clear as can be uh, made. And uh, all of that work I do uh, as a volunteer here at Radio Survivor. And at this stage, I I thought I want... I decided yesterday that I'd like to just let listeners of Radio Survivor know that uh, I am looking for more paying work in the world of uh, podcast production and radio production. And if you have any tips or leads for a very experienced community radio editor and producer... Uh, please do reach out the email address is podcast at com. I would really appreciate uh, the help of the, my community uh, in this job search well on behalf of Paul rees Mandel and Jennifer Waits my name is Eric Klein thank you so much for listening uh, thank you so much to Monica De La Torre for today's episode I really loved it and uh, thank thank you thank you for being a member of our community we'll see you next week